Section 1 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Turtle. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 1. Containing as much of the birth of the foundling as is necessary or proper to acquaint the reader with in the beginning of this history. Chapter 1. The Introduction to the Work or Bill of Fare to the Feast. An author ought to consider himself, not as a gentleman who gives a private or eleemosynary treat, but rather as one who keeps a public ordinary at which all persons are welcome for their money. In the former case, it is well known that the entertainer provides what fare he pleases, and though this should be very indifferent, and utterly disagreeable to the taste of his company, they must not find any fault. Nay, on the contrary, good breeding forces them outwardly to approve and to commend whatever is set before them. Now the contrary of this happens to the master of an ordinary. Men who pay for what they eat will insist on gratifying their palates, however nice and whimsical these may prove, and if everything is not agreeable to their taste, will challenge a right to censure, to abuse, and to damn their dinner without control. To prevent, therefore, giving offence to their customers by any such disappointment, it had been usual with the honest and well-meaning host to provide a bill of fare which all persons may peruse at their first entrance into the house, and having thence acquainted themselves with the entertainment which they may expect, may either stay and regale with what is provided for them, or may depart to some other ordinary better accommodated to their taste. As we do not disdain to borrow wit or wisdom from any man who is capable of lending us either, we have condescended to take a hint from these honest victuallers, and shall prefix not only a general bill of fare to our whole entertainment, but shall likewise give the reader particular bills to every course which is to be served up in this and the ensuing volumes. The provision, then, which we have here made, is no other than human nature. Nor do I fear that my sensible reader, though most luxurious in his taste, will start, cavil, or be offended, because I have named but one article. The tortoise, as the alderman of Bristol, well learned in eating, knows by much experience, besides the delicious calipash and calipi, contains many different kinds of food. Nor can the learned reader be ignorant that in human nature, though here collected under one general name, is such prodigious variety that a cook will have sooner gone through all the several species of animal and vegetable food in the world than an author will be able to exhaust so extensive a subject. An objection may perhaps be apprehended from the more delicate, that this dish is too common and vulgar. For what else is the subject of all the romances, novels, plays, and poems with which the stalls abound? Many exquisite viands might be rejected by the epicure, if it was a sufficient cause for his condemning of them as common and vulgar, that something was to be found in the most paltry alleys under the same name. In reality, true nature is as difficult to be met with in authors as the Bayon ham or Bologna sausage is to be found in the shops. But the whole, to continue the same metaphor, consists in the cookery of the author, for, as Mr. Pope tells us, true wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. The same animal which hath the honour to have met some part of his flesh eaten at the table of a duke, may perhaps be degraded in another part, and some of his limbs gibbeted, as it were, in the vilest stall in town. Where, then, lies the difference between the food of the nobleman and the porter, if both are at dinner on the same ox or calf, 
but in the seasoning, the dressing, the garnishing, and the setting forth? Hence, the one provokes and incites the most languid appetite, and the other turns and palls that which is the sharpest and keenest. In like manner, the excellence of the mental entertainment consists less in the subject than in the author's skill in well-dressing it up. How pleased, therefore, will the reader be to find that we have, in the following work, adhered closely to one of the highest principles of the best cook which the present age, or perhaps that of Heliogabalus, have produced. This great man, as is well known to all lovers of polite eating, begins at first by setting plain things before his hungry guests, rising afterwards by degrees, as their stomachs may be supposed to decrease, to the very quintessence of sauce and spices. In like manner, we shall represent human nature, at first to the keen appetite of our reader, in that more plain and simple manner in which it is found in the country, and shall hereafter hash and ragoo it with all the high French and Italian seasoning of affectation and vice which courts and cities afford. By these means, we doubt not but our reader may be rendered desirous to read on for ever, as the great person just above mentioned is supposed to have made some persons eat. Having premised thus much, we will now detain those who like our bill of fare no longer from their diet, and shall proceed directly to serve up the first course of our history for their entertainment. Chapter 2. A short description of Squire Allworthy, and a fuller account of Miss Bridget Allworthy, his sister. In that part of the western division of this kingdom, which is commonly called Somersetshire, there lately lived, and perhaps lives still, a gentleman whose name was Allworthy, and who might well be called the favourite of both nature and fortune, for both of these seem to have contended which should bless and enrich him most. In this contention, nature may seem to have come off victorious, as she bestowed on him many gifts, while fortune had only one gift in her power. But in pouring forth this, she was so very profuse, that others perhaps may think this single endowment to have been more than equivalent to all the various blessings which he enjoyed from nature. From the former of these, he derived an agreeable person, a sound constitution, a solid understanding, and a benevolent heart. By the latter, he was decreed to the inheritance of one of the largest estates in the county. This gentleman had in his youth married a very worthy and beautiful woman, of whom he had been extremely fond. By her he had three children, all of whom died in their infancy. He had likewise had the misfortune of burying this beloved wife herself, about five years before the time in which this history chooses to set out. This loss, however great, he bore like a man of sense and constancy, though it must be confessed he would often talk a little whimsically on this head, for he sometimes said he looked on himself as still married, and considered his wife as only gone a little before him, a journey which he should most certainly, sooner or later, take after her, and that he had not the least doubt of meeting her again in a place where he should never part with her more. Sentiments for which his sense was arraigned by one part of his neighbours, his religion by a second, and his sincerity by a third. He now lived, for the most part, retired in the country, with one sister for whom he had a very tender affection. This lady was now somewhat past the age of thirty, an era at which, in the opinion of the malicious, the title of old maid may with no impropriety be assumed. She was of that species of woman whom you commend rather for good qualities than beauty, and who are generally called, by their own sex, very good sort of women as good a sort of woman, madam, as you would wish to know. Indeed, she was so far from regretting want of beauty, that she never mentioned that perfection, if it can be called one, without contempt, 
and would often thank God she was not as handsome as Miss Such a One, whom perhaps beauty had led into errors which she might have otherwise avoided. Miss Bridget Allworthy, for that was the name of this lady, very rightly conceived the charms of person in a woman to be no better than snares for herself, as well as for others, and yet so discreet was she in her conduct, that her prudence was as much on the guard as if she had all the snares to apprehend which were ever laid for her whole sex. Indeed, I have observed, though it may seem unaccountable to the reader, that this guard of prudence, like the trained bands, is always readiest to go on duty where there is the least danger. It often basely and cowardly deserts those paragons for whom the men are all wishing, sighing, dying, and spreading every net in their power, and constantly attends at the heels of that higher order of women, for whom the other sex have a more distant and awful respect, and whom, from despair, I suppose, of success, they never venture to attack. Reader, I think proper, before we proceed any farther together, to acquaint thee that I intend to digress through this whole history as often as I see occasion, of which I am myself a better judge than any pitiful critic whatever. And here I must desire all those critics to mind their own business, and not to intermeddle with affairs or works which in no ways concern them, for till they produce the authority by which they are constituted judges, I shall not plead to their jurisdiction. CHAPTER three. An odd accident which befell Mr. Allworthy at his return home. The decent behaviour of Mrs. Deborah Wilkins, with some proper animadversions on bastards. I have told my reader in the preceding chapter that Mr. Allworthy inherited a large fortune, that he had a good heart, and no family. Hence, doubtless, it will be concluded, by many, that he lived like an honest man, owed no one a shilling, took nothing but what was his own, kept a good house, entertained his neighbours with a hearty welcome at his table, and was charitable to the poor, i.e. to those who had rather begged than work, by giving them the offals from it, that he died immensely rich, and built a hospital. And true it is that he did many of these things, but had he done nothing more, I should have left him to have recorded his own merit on some fair freestone over the door of that hospital. Matters of a much more extraordinary kind are to be the subject of this history, or I should grossly misspend my time in writing so voluminous a work, and you, my sagacious friend, might with equal profit and pleasure travel through some pages which certain droll authors have been facetiously pleased to call the History of England. Mr. Allworthy had been absent a full quarter of a year in London, on some very particular business, though I know not what it was, but judge of its importance by its having detained him so long from home, whence he had not been absent a month at a time during the space of many years. He came to his house very late in the evening, and after a short supper with his sister, retired much fatigued to his chamber. Here, having spent some minutes on his knees, a custom which he never broke through on any account, he was preparing to step into bed, when, upon opening the clothes, to his great surprise he beheld an infant, wrapped up in some coarse linen, in a sweet and profound sleep, between his sheets. He stood some time lost in astonishment at this sight. But, as good nature had always the ascendant in his mind, he soon began to be touched with sentiments of compassion for the little wretch before him. He then rang his bell, and ordered an elderly woman's servant to rise immediately and come to him, and in the meantime was so eager in contemplating the beauty of innocence, appearing in those lively colours with which infancy and sleep always display it, that his thoughts were much too engaged to reflect that he was in his shirt when the matron came in. She had indeed given her master sufficient time to dress himself, for out of respect to him, and regard to decency, she had spent many minutes in adjusting her hair at the looking-glass, notwithstanding all the hurry in which she had been summoned by the servant, 
and though her master, for aught she knew, lay expiring in an apoplexy or in some other fit. It will not be wondered at that a creature who had so strict a regard to decency in her own person should be shocked at the least deviation from it in another. She therefore no sooner opened the door and saw her master standing by the bedside in his shirt, with a candle in his hand, than she started back in a most terrible fright, and might perhaps have swooned away, had he not now recollected his being undressed, and put an end to her terrors by desiring her to stay without the door till he had thrown some clothes over his back, and was become incapable of shocking the pure eyes of Mrs. Deborah Wilkins, who, though in the fifty-second year of her age, vowed she had never beheld a man without his coat. Sneerers and profane wits may perhaps laugh at her first fright, yet my graver reader, when he considers the time of night, the summons from her bed, and the situation in which she found her master, will highly justify and applaud her conduct, unless the prudence which must be supposed to attend maidens at that period of life at which Mrs. Deborah had arrived, should a little lessen his admiration. When Mrs. Deborah returned into the room, and was acquainted by her master with the finding the little infant, her consternation was rather greater than his had been, nor could she refrain from crying out, with great horror of accent as well as look, "'My good sir, what's to be done?' Mr. Allworthy answered she must take care of the child that evening, and in the morning he would give orders to provide it a nurse. "'Yes, sir,' says she, "'and I hope your worship will send out your warrant to take up the ossiate's mother, for she must be one of the neighbourhood, and I shall be glad to see her committed to Bridwell, and whipped at the cart's tail. Indeed, such wicked sluts cannot be too severely punished.' "'Our warrant is not our first by impudence in laying it to your worship.' "'In laying it to me, Deborah,' answered Allworthy, "'I can't think she hath any such design. "'I suppose she hath only taken this method to provide for her child, "'and truly I am glad she hath not done any worse.' "'I don't know what is worse,' cries Deborah, "'than for such wicked strumpets to lay their sins at honest men's doors. "'And though your worship knows your own innocence, "'and yet the world is censorious, "'it hath been many an honest man's act to pass for the father of children he never begot.' And if your worship should provide for the child, it may make the people the apter to believe. Besides, why should your worship provide for what the parish is obliged to maintain? For my own part, if it was an honest man's child, indeed, but for my own part, it goes against me to touch these misbegotten wretches, whom I don't look upon as my fellow creatures. Oh, oh how it stinks! It does not smell like a Christian. If I might be so bold to give my advice, I would have it put in a basket and sent out and laid at the church warden's door. It is a good night, only a little rainy and windy, and if it was well wrapped up and put in a warm basket, it's two to one, but it lives till it is found in the morning. But if it should not, we have discharged our duty in taking proper care of it, and it is, perhaps, better for such creatures to die in a state of innocence than to grow up and imitate their mothers, for nothing better can be expected of them. There were some strokes in this speech, which perhaps would have offended Mr. Allworthy had he strictly attended to it, but he had now got one of his fingers into the infant's hand which, by its gentle pressure, seemed to implore his assistance, had certainly out-pleaded the eloquence of Mrs. Deborah, had it been ten times greater than it was. He now gave Mrs. Deborah positive orders to take the child to her own bed, and to call up a maid-servant to provide it pap, and other things, against it waked. He likewise ordered that proper clothes should be procured for it early in the morning, and that it should be brought to himself as soon as he was stirring. Such was the discernment of Mrs. Wilkins, and such the respect she bore her master, under whom she enjoyed a most excellent place, that her scruples gave way to his peremptory commands, and she took the child under her arms, without any apparent disgust at the illegality of its birth, and, declaring it was a sweet little infant, walked off with it to her own chamber. 
Mr. Allworthy here betook himself to those pleasing slumbers which a heart that hungers after goodness is apt to enjoy when thoroughly satisfied. As these are possibly sweeter than what are occasioned by any other hearty meal, I should take more pains to display them to the reader if I knew any heir to recommend him to for the procuring such an appetite. End of section 1